You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This hymn, entitled, and most of you know it probably, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, written in 1738, it was inspired by, among other things, a doctrine that played a central role in the evangelical awakening of the 18th century in England and the American colonies. The doctrine was regeneration, and the author of the hymn was Charles Wesley, younger brother of the arguably more famous revivalist, John. Now, when people think of the religious revivals of the 1730s and 1740s, the obvious names that come to mind are John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards. We think of bold declarations by John Wesley like, I look upon the whole world as my parish. We think of the open-air preaching of George Whitfield to the masses on both sides of the Atlantic. We think of the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Perhaps not as quickly do we think of the over 7,000 hymns written by Charles Wesley. And yet, some scholars have concluded that these hymns are the revival's greatest legacy. Well, Michael, I want to turn to you right out of the gates here and ask, has the history of the church undervalued the contributions of Charles Wesley? Yeah, in some ways, I think you're right. I think that there is um, a failure on the part of uh, evangelical historiography to appreciate uh, the impact of the hymnody so that, um, and I say that because often the history of this period is written apart from the history of, of the hymnody. So you have musicologists and hymnologists who write about the history of the hymns, but um, historians of the era, if they, if, they, if they look at the hymns, they'll bring them in as a, an example of maybe, you know, a heading for a chapter or um, a text under a chapter heading, but to actually take the hymn and to parse it, as we might say, to kind of explore its theology and how that intersects with what's going on in the pew and in the community. Yeah, I, I, I do think that there is um, there needs to be the kind of coming together of hymnology and uh, your regular history of revival in the, in the 18th century. And I wonder, Michael, this is odd for me as a as a professor of Christian preaching, among other things, for me to suggest this. I almost don't want to suggest it. But have we paid too much attention to the preaching of the revival or of the awakening? And in that sense, 
kind of given the hymn, the, the hymns, uh, a backseat to the preaching and maybe, maybe we should, but I mean, the preaching is nothing I ever want to devalue. And yet the preaching tends to overshadow the preaching of Whitfield, the preaching of Wesley. And, and frankly, would you agree? Charles Wesley's preaching often gets undervalued. John didn't want it to, but I mean, people don't realize in addition to his great work of, of hymns, he was a fine preacher in his own right. Yeah, this has come out in recent years, I think, very clearly. Uh, there is a, um, a volume of Charles Wesley's sermons that was brought out around the time of the tercentennial of his birth in 2007. Um, they brought out a, a, a volume, uh, Oxford University Press brought out a volume of his sermons with a very fine introduction, which emphasized that um, Charles has often been neglected as a preacher. But I think it's interesting. I think that, that that kind of estimation of Charles actually is probably found initially within the Methodist movement itself. I think Methodism, uh, by the end of the 19th, 18th century, as it began to think about her identity, uh, saw Charles primarily in the vehicle of a hymn writer and forgot that he was once uh, as good a preacher as John. Um, once he gets married in the late 1740s, 1749 to be exact, he settles down and no longer itinerates. But I think, I think uh, Methodism itself is probably to some degree uh, to blame for the way that Charles is remembered only for the one thing, namely his, uh, his hymnody. But I think it's also, uh, also part of the problem here is, is as I began, the, the separation of hymnologists doing their thing and historians of this era doing their thing and almost the never, never the twain shall meet. And uh, to the detriment of both, you know, uh, in many ways. Well, I think you've been doing a lot of work of, uh, you know, in your career and will continue to, and I want to join you in this and trying to let the two meet. All right, let's let's do our best to, mm -hmm. to bring these two together, and and that's what we're going to try to do tonight as well. And I, I want to get into maybe Michael, you could you could outline for us a little bit of of the era. Could we place Charles uh, in the context of the 18th century? I mean, who was Charles Wesley? Some of our listeners may not quite know who we're talking about because they're so used to hearing about John. Yeah, John and Charles had what uh, John often calls it their partnership. And in, in many ways, I think John's ministry is impossible to conceive of without Charles. They, there was very little that John did not do that he didn't consult with his brother on. He could be a bit of a domineering brother. Um, so, for instance, when they, John decides to go to America in seven, January of 1736, um, very bad timing if you don't sail the atlantic in january but john was going to um charles didn't want to go and basically john said you're going and off they went and charles took the first opportunity to skedaddle back to england um, he wasn't in the colony of uh, georgia more than six months uh before he returns to england before the end of 1736 so um um certainly John saw Charles's ministry as vital to his work. And um, even with the hymns, we, we tend to think, okay, they're, they're all Charles's. Well, they're, no, they're not all Charles's. Uh, 
uh, John would edit the hymns. And um, John uh, often removed phrases and whole stanzas that he thought were too emotional. Um, he, he always has in view the, the regular charge that was leveled against the Methodist revival, that it was enthusiastic, it was uh, fanatical. And so, so he tries to guard the hymnody against that. So when we think of the brothers, we, need, we think of one brother, we need to think of the other. A uh, very different in temperament. Um, they both grew up in um, an Anglican clergyman's home, Samuel Wesley. Um, he tended to be broad church, as we would say. He's a moderate in terms of his his uh, predilections. Would he be a nonconformist? Is that no, no? He's an Anglican. To say? No, no. He's okay, an was it? Okay, I was thinking yeah, yeah. He, they were raised no, no. in nonconformist. Oh, well, he God. was okay. raised actually nonconformist. He was raised a Presbyterian. Um, his father, so the John and Charles's grandfather, and their great grandfather were Puritans, both of whom were expelled um, at the Act of Uniformity in 1662 from the Church of England. Oh, so I was and, thinking of their grandfather. <clears throat> yep, yep. Yeah. So Samuel Wesley grows up in nonconformity, but mm -hmm. at some point in his teen years, he realizes there was no future for him uh, in that world. Because although the nonconformists were free to to plant churches, etc., they were they were they were not they couldn't go to university and graduate. They they couldn't hold political office. They couldn't hold uh, commissioned military office, army or navy. Uh, their 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 scope in life to, to a degree was was certainly restricted. And so he he rejoined the Church of England. Um. So they, they grew up in that world. <clears throat> Both of them, though, are influenced as young men by what we would describe today as probably high church piety, um, the pietism of various really high church Anglicans in the 17th century are influential on them, and also the kind of mystical uh, mysticism of a man like William Law, um, who was a... 17th century mystic to some degree. That's influential. Uh, the Wesleys read Madame Guillon, for example, um, the Jansenist movement, where we probably know Blaise Pascal would be a famous figure. Um, and then his conversion comes, uh, actually three days before his brother, May the 21st, 1738, which is appropriately Pentecost Sunday that year. And they have a common denominator with influence. Of, in their conversion. They were both reading or listening to a particular reformer, right? Yeah, Luther. Yeah, yeah. Moravians. Yeah. <clears throat> and and mediated, mediated through uh, the Moravians, the mm -hmm. kind of Lutheran, German Lutheran pietists, who uh, both of them had met <clears throat> in, uh, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And um, the... Um, the gift of, of hymnody seems to have been released at, really at Charles's conversion in 1738. There is some indication he wrote poetry before then, but from that point on, he wrote he wrote around 10 lines of verse a day. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. yeah, and I understand his conversion hymn very shortly after he comes to Christ. He's meditating on Psalm 107, and he writes, I, I think, what's famously referred to as his conversion hymn, and the title of it escapes me, but... 
Yeah, well, probably the, the hymn that he writes is, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin? Hmm. Um, which is the conversion hymn that he wrote in the afternoon of his conversion. Um, and Can It Be is written a bit later. Um, mm -hmm. Over a Thousand Tongues to Sing, which is not the... The first six stanzas of that hymn are chopped out by John, never to see print. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Over oh, a Thousand Tongues is actually stanza seven. And um, that's a bit later, but that will become the standard uh, first hymn in every Methodist hymnal after 1780. Um, but Charles was a preacher as well. And um, he's, um, he has differences with his brother. Uh, differences vis-a-vis, -vis, for instance, their status regarding the Church of England. Uh, John will go ahead and ordain men, including Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke, for service in the United States after the, after the Revolution, uh, where Methodism has been shattered in the U.S., partly because of John's adamant opposition to the Revolution and his Tory politics. And... Um, uh, the Methodists in America will ask for help, and uh, John will send over these men whom he has personally ordained. He has no right ordaining them as an Anglican. Um, he can't ordain them as an Anglican minister, that is. And Charles was furious at him that he would go against Anglican polity. Um, he comes to differ with him on Christian perfection, the, the idea that you can attain to the point where you no longer sin in thought, word, or deed. And then so on it wasn't just Whit Whitfield. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, well, go ahead. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't just Whitfield. I was going to say, no. it wasn't just it wasn't Whitfield that opposed John's uh, Christian perfectionism, but his brother as well. Yeah, that, that probably about 20 years in. By the 1760s, I think John, Charles has is, is got serious questions about people that John would trot forth, you know, trot out, well, this, this woman hasn't sinned in thought, word, or deed for six months. Mm -hmm. Um, Whitfield met one of those women and he said, even while I was talking to her, there were marks of imperfection. Um, and he, <laughs> he asked her, he asked her, he said, uh, George Whitfield said, uh, I asked her, um, did she ever say the Lord's Prayer? And she obviously must have thought, if I say yes, and she's an Anglican Methodist in the Anglican Church, if I say yes, which she had to because. Uh, it was recited regularly in worship, uh, forgive us our sins. But she has claimed not to be not to sin in thought, word, or deed. So she says, yes, I do, but I only pray it for other people. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she had attained it. Wow. Yeah. Well, anyway, you mentioned something. Go ahead, sir. Well, Michael, yeah. you mentioned something earlier I wanted to, I wanted to follow up with you on. Uh, and I don't know how much of this is legend or how much of it is true, but you had mentioned Charles was furious when John took these liberties to ordain, uh, you know, people apart from the Anglican church or the church of England. And, and I've understood that Charles would often kind of be a restraining influence or at least try to be on John. He was so given over to improvisation and, and kind of, I don't know, maybe the, the, the nonconformist kind of shadow of his grandfather. I don't know. But but then was Charles really this kind of trying to pull John back at times and running interference with the Church of England? Is that true? I yeah, I think so. I think I think Charles is a loyal son of the Church of England in a way that John is not. John will protest that he is he'll say that you know the Church of England has no no loyaler son 
than me. But then he goes off and he ordains two men for the United States uh, as ministers. And only a, only a bishop can do that. And uh, John John said, I, I, you know, I read the New Testament and I came to the conclusion that a presbyter equals a bishop. Now, as Baptists, we would hardly agree with that. But he, he's an Anglican. Right. Right. You know, it <laughs> doesn't work for an Anglican. No, it doesn't work for an Anglican for, for presbyters to be ordaining presbyters. I mean, that's either Presbyterian or Congregationalist. Um, so how anyway. much of a rift did these things cause? Because oh. I know John is famous for saying often he would open conversations with my brother and I. So there was, you know, like you said, early on, this great unity among the two. John not able to really think of his ministry apart from Charles, and yet there were rifts. You know, yeah, there were probably, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the real rift uh, theologically was that one regarding um, the ordination of men for the United States in the mid-1780s. Um, there were rifts before that, um, and sometimes they would last for months. They wouldn't speak to each other. Uh, no, four or five months. Um, when they were in Georgia, they made a pact that neither of them would think about marriage without consulting the other. And um, because John had a disastrous affair over there, he fell in love with a young woman who didn't reciprocate. And when she got married, he refused to give her the Lord's Supper. And that, that ended up getting him booted out of the colony. And so they they had this pact. And... Um, it disintegrated pretty quickly when John came up with a second woman he wanted to marry, who he probably should have married. She would have been ideal in many, many ways. But uh, Charles felt she was b below their social status uh, station. And so he went and convinced her to marry somebody else in the movement. <laughs> and John, John was furious at him. So, uh, and then uh, to, to make things even worse, when Charles decided to get married, he, he knew that John might not like it, so he didn't tell him for only a few weeks before the marriage. He said, I, I'm, I'm marrying uh, Sarah Gwynn, Sally Gwynn. She was uh, 20, nearly 20 years younger than him. Um, he was um, 42. She was 23. And um, so it's a bit of a difference. It's not, it's not too big a difference in one sense. And... Um, uh, he, he said, I, 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 I'd like you to officiate at the wedding. John didn't like weddings. Uh, in his diaries, he only mentions weddings uh, that he was at three times. He liked funerals. And he, he preached at a, over 100 funerals if, uh, because in the funerals he could preach the gospel. He felt he couldn't preach the gospel at weddings. I'm not I was sure why. Say, why didn't he like weddings? Why didn't he like weddings? <laughs> I, it's, it's bizarre. Anyway, so... Charles had arranged that they would get to the, the small town in Wales because his wife-to-be was Welsh about six days before the wedding. So they set off eight days, and they needed two days to go from Bristol. I think it's Clenelly in uh, southern Wales, but I forget exactly where it was. Um, and um, should have taken them two days to get there. It took them six days to get there because John had arranged – uh, preaching excursions. So they'd go, they'd go 20 miles and John would say, ah, uh, we got to turn aside. We've got to go to this church. I, I, I've spoke to some of the brothers and we're going to, I'm going to preach. And in fact, when he got into Wales, he said, uh, now this, uh, we, we can't keep going because we've got to go up to this mountain and they were going to go up the mountaintop and spend the whole night in prayer and fasting for the 
the conversion of Wales. And uh, <laughs> by the great. time they by the time they got to where Sarah lived, Charles was fit to be tied. Um, in his diary, he just says, "I am so angry at my brother." I mean, this is what he's done. And um, so they they didn't always see eye to eye, and they're both very human characters. Um, Charles, I find a lot warmer and a lot more attractive a person. John is John seems to me to be a man who is all business. He's an activist. Yeah. And uh, one of the, I think, the downsides of evangelicalism is is the 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 unceasing activism that has marked our movement. Well, I mean, I'm an evangelical without any within any compunction of using that phrase or shame in using that phrase, even despite the fact that it's become a difficult word to use. And I use it because of our heritage, but that doesn't mean our heritage is always the best. And there is a downside to the activism of John. Uh, he's a soul winner, and that's great. But he's a soul winner to the exclusion of, of often normal human activities. Um, Charles has a hymn, no, a poem, on seeing the sunset uh, in, I think it's Cornwall, Land's End. Uh, one can't imagine John ever penning anything like that. The idea of you would stop and spend an hour watching the sun go down. Yeah. Um, he would have no time for that. No, no, no. You, no. you know, who, who, who in this neighborhood is there to share the gospel with? Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't want to just get sidetracked and talk all about John, but I'm about to ask you another uh, to comment on something about John. Maybe we could, their marriages were, were very different. I mean, John, he had to learn of his wife's burial, right? I mean, he wasn't yeah. even there for it i mean yeah he was so detached from his his wife i believe it was molly right Correct. and and i mean that would not be a marriage to emulate and my guess is charles because of these temperament differences maybe the way they were wired had a i don't know a lot about it but a far better marriage i imagine than john and molly did yeah i would think in in many ways uh, charles has a, an ideal marriage as, as ideal as a marriage can be in in our in our world where there is sin and sometimes division even between the, the, the differences of opinion that are difficult uh, between husband and wife. Um, there was a book a few years ago written by a woman named Doreen Moore, which is a fabulous book. Um, it's called Good Christians, comma, uh, Good Husbands, question mark. And it deals with three marriages from this period, that of George Whitfield, that of Jonathan Edwards, and that of John Wesley, and uh, they have a they're a spectrum uh, from the very good with Edwards to the so-so Whitfield. It's kind of blah, really, and then to the to the terrible, which is John Wesley. Yeah. Um, now she could have used Sally and Charles as the very good. Uh, mm -hmm. She chose to use Edwards, but Sally and Charles had a fabulous marriage. When um, Sally falls ill, nearly dies of smallpox. Um, their friend, the Selena, Selena Hastings, Countess Huntington, comes to visit, and she comes into the bedroom where Sarah Wesley is, and Sarah has gotten over the worst of it; is beyond danger. But Selena is horrified because Sally or Sarah had been a very beautiful young woman. 
and the, the smallpox has completely disfigured her face, from which she never really, she never regained her beauty. And Selena was, didn't know what to say. And then she hears these words from Charles. Is not my wife beautiful? And um, I've been in the house. You can still go to the, the Wesley's home in Bristol and um, been in the bedroom where they where that took place. And uh, they had a they had a fabulous marriage. Wow, that's I hadn't heard that that story, yeah, Michael. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Well, and I'm sure th those marriages were so different in a lot of ways because of, like we said, the temperament or the the way. Uh, the different ways they were wired and, uh, but what a dynamic duo. So we don't want to take away from that. I mean, we have our strengths, we have our weaknesses and, uh, Charles certainly had his strengths as he worked alongside John. Well, Michael, I, I, that, that's something to behold when you think you got me stuttering about the, the marriages and, and Charles, you know, he, it sounds like he lived his marriage, like he wrote his poetry in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he, we have, as you said earlier, um, I think you quoted about 9,000 pieces of poetry. And yeah, I said over 7,000, but you would probably know more exactly. It's, a, it's about 9,000. Wow. And a lot of those poems are for his family. Um, he'd always write a poem on the birth of his children. Um, he wrote a number of poems for his wife. Um, he's got a beautiful one that he wrote on their marriage. Um and I wish I had kind of prepped myself. I could have brought that. Uh, it's a beautiful little piece of poetry about how he takes that passage in Ecclesiastes, uh, two are better than one. Uh, if one falls, then the other can lift them up. And he, he wrote that for their marriage. Well, I have no doubt we'll talk about Charles again, and we will bring that uh, into one of our discussions. Uh, you know, at some point we should probably do a whole program on on George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And again, we'll put these men in context and, and have to work in Charles again. Uh, uh, there's so much we could say about Charles Wesley. Well, you know, Michael, I can't think of Christmas or Easter without thinking of Charles Wesley. I wonder if our audience knows at Christmas, one of the most common hymns, and I hope it's not common in our affections, but hark the herald angels sing. That's a Charles Wesley. And then do you know, I'm about to put you on the spot here, what's one of the great Easter or uh, Resurrection Sunday hymns we would sing by Charles Wesley? Christ whose glory fills the skies. Um, no, that's not the one you're thinking of. I'm uh, not thinking of that one, though yeah, that would there work. Is, there is one. Um, oh. I would sing it for you, but Go I, ahead. I don't want to Go ahead. Off. Which one is it? Well, Christ the Lord is risen today. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. No. I mean, so, I, I mean, Wesley is all over evangelicalism, and we enjoy him, obviously, outside of Christmas and Easter, but two of the most familiar hymns, probably, uh, for evangelicals. And there they are, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And, and we talked earlier, Michael, but if we had more time, we don't on this episode, but the theology in these hymns is profound. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, the very much so. The, I mean, one of the marks of a Wesley hymn is is rich theology. He loves he, um, he, he uh, it was um, Bernard Manning, uh, a hymnologist and historian of nonconformity, 
um, who wrote a small piece on the hymns of Watson Wesley back in the 1920s. Um, he, he talks about how uh, even just to touch on and to meditate on the great doctrines of the faith, the incarnation and the, the trinity and the ascension and resurrection and crucifixion of our Lord, um, the, these, are, these, these fill the Wesley hymns. Um, I think one of the, 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 the flaws of contemporary hymnology, if I could describe it that way, um, is our failure to, to teach the faith through our hymnody. We, a lot of our hymns uh, relate to elements of piety and devotion or worship. You know, we worship you and, and so on. But we don't teach the faith. We don't talk about the cross or the resurrection or the ascension let alone the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And Wesley did this. And um, uh, I mean, one of the most important marks of his, of his hymnody is it, it's really suffused with dogma. Well, we can use some of that suffusion <laughs> today yep, in the contemporary church. And this might be an appropriate place to end this episode, Michael. Uh, and we're going to have to come back to Charles. But, but his hymns, you're right. I love the way you put it full of dogma. And some people are afraid of that term. You shouldn't be dogma. Rich doctrine, the dogma of the faith, what we believe, teach, and confess. Let it be all over our hymns, right? And they were for Charles. Well, Michael, thanks so much. Look forward to next week. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.